Lord, this morning as we get into your word, we just uh, we want to hear from you. We want to know what it is you're saying to the church, to us as your as your church, as part of your church. And uh, Lord, we ask that you would be lifted up, that God, you would uh, open our eyes and our hearts to the things you'd say this morning. We, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We're picking back up in Revelation chapter 3. We're going to look at the sixth of the seven churches this morning, the Church of Philadelphia. Uh, Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. Uh, the title of this morning's message is An Open Door. An Open Door. And to start out this message, I'm going to read some headlines that I pulled up this morning. And they weren't all the news stories I was looking for because it seems that so much is going on that I can't even find the stuff I was reading from just a couple of days ago. And if you're interested in the actual links, uh, they're available in the PDF for download on the website. But the first one says, far from coronavirus virus epicenter, China puts another city under lockdown. Uh, struggling to contain the virus, authorities virtually shut down the eastern city of Wenzhou on Sunday some 500 miles from Wuhan, where that outbreak has begun. Uh, you know, that there's this outbreak that's going on. This isn't the first one. And the point of all these headlines is, I'm reading to you is not that these are the first time these things are happening, but the frequency at which they're now beginning to happen and the fact that they're happening more and more and more. We talk about diseases in the end times, pestilences. There's, uh, I don't have it in here, but it just came to mind, uh, this giant uh, swarm of locusts in Africa is eating up all their crops. They're going to have a major famine. They're going to be struggling, even more so. Africa struggles to begin with with food, but after this, talk about diseases and famines. This one, a false Christ. A church stampede leaves 20 dead after, I'll put quotes around it, pastor pours holy oil on the ground. Some 20 people have died in a stampede at a church service in an open ground stadium in Tanzania. Officials have said hundreds of people attended a prayer service on Saturday evening led by a popular preacher in the town of Moshi near Mount Kilimanjaro. Uh, he calls himself the Apostle, reported, reportedly poured holy oil on the ground, prompting a crowd to search forward in the hopes of touching it. And uh, 20 people died and 16 people were injured in the trampling. Talk about false Christ in the end days. Japan, a nation whose military since World War II exists only as a defense force, is now sailing a destroyer into the Middle East to help deal with this uh, Iran and U.S. tension over oil in the Gulf of uh, Oman. We have wars, rumors of wars. Now Japan, which is a defensive nation, now deciding that the war on terror is no longer something they could stay home about. In this one, it says in the last days that the love of many will grow cold. And we see PETA chief says it's derogatory to call animals pets. They are not pets. They are not your cheap burglary alarm. They are not decorations or toys. They are living beings. I would agree that they are living beings. She says the calling out compared calling animals of pets to the treatment of women before the feminist movement. As if, is she going to say that animals need the right to vote? And I have to wonder where she stands on abortion. This abortion survivors group says, make a statement, uh, Fox, the network that's broadcasting the Super Bowl today, by not watching the ads. Because Fox denied ads 
for a pro-life commercial. Everything else in these ads, they're going to have trans men wearing women's clothes and pretending to be women in a commercial that's lauded. But you can't have a, a commercial about saving babies' lives. The love of many will grow cold. There's more in here as well. Earthquakes in Puerto Rico, Yosemite, Turkey, just this past week. Facebook announces plan to remove posts about coronavirus, quote unquote, conspiracy theories. And yes, I admit that conspiracy theories do spread online and people spread misinformation. But my problem with things like this is, who are the gatekeepers? Who hold the keys to the truth? Who decides what's true and what should be said or not? There's a reason we have the First Amendment. And we see the internet is quickly becoming a place where the First Amendment is not allowed. Another one, coronavirus contains quote-unquote HIV insertions, stoking fears of our artificially created bioweapon. And I read as well that uh, flu and HIV drugs took care of it in one patient who was gravely ill. Could this disease that came out of a city with a stage four bio facility that apparently someone founded who was charged by Canada and America with theft of a, the same disease or a similar disease a year or two ago? I mean, might be conspiracy theory, but on the other hand, seems like a smoking gun perhaps. Another one, uh, a major pro-life group was banned from another social media company, TikTok, after it was just uh, an ad that said, it had the girl had two pills, one said, uh, you know, being pro-choice for abortion, the other one said being pro-life for babies. She took the pro-life baby one and showed all these pictures of babies and all these moms who were considering abortion, who chose a baby and were very glad that they did. And they said, oh, it was an error. And they reinstated it after backlash. But the list goes on. I can't, you know, by the way, TikTok is owned by China. I can't even find the stories from a few days ago, like I said before, you know, that we are getting so close to the end, so many wild and crazy things. And yeah, we have access to news and I get the practicality of that. But there's so much going on. If you don't think that every day that goes by, we are closer to the end, I'm sorry, but you have your head in the sand. And again, the point is that these aren't, again, that these aren't new things, but the frequency, like labor, these aren't Braxton Hicks, these are labor pains, and there's about to be an end. Matthew 24, 8, all these events are the beginning of labor pains, the beginning of sorrows, that word sorrows is labor pains. If we remember previously, we saw John in the Isle of Patmos, he was exiled there on the Lord's Day, spending time with God, and God gives him this vision in fact, it's more in the vision. He sees Jesus, the revealed Jesus Christ in power and glory, where he's walking amongst the seven lampstands, the seven stars in his hand, his eyes are fire, his feet, this glowing uh, image of the Lord. Remember the message to the first church, the loveless church in Ephesus. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the first works. The second church, the persecuted church, Smyrna. The third church, the compromising church, Pergamos. The fourth church, the corrupt church, Thyatira, says, Indeed, I will cast her into a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her into great tribulation, unless they repent of their deeds. And last week, we looked at the dead church in Sardis, said to be watchful and strengthen things which remain, that you must overcome. You have not found your works perfect. I wonder where we fit in as believers in our day and age. I have to wonder 
if we're not part of, hopefully part of this church. I think every church would want to be a part of the Philadelphian church. I think a lot of churches today would claim that they are a Philadelphian church, but sadly, I don't think the Lord would say that most of us are part of the Philadelphian church. The church in Philadelphia is the faithful church. Again, Ephesus was desired one. Smyrna means death. Pergamos makes marriage. Thyatira, Semiramis, that ancient uh, uh, cult. Sardis is remnant. Philadelphia is brotherly love. There's one more church after that next time. I want to read a verse that I read this morning. It says, 2 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Paul says to Timothy, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but according to their own desires, because they have itching ears, they'll heap up for themselves teachers, and they will turn their ears away from the truth and be turned aside to fables. But you, be watchful in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, and fulfill your ministry. In John 13, 35, Jesus says, By this, all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Lord, we do pray that you'd help us be, be our strength in these last days, help us love one another, and hold fast to your word. May your word uh, ring true in this message. Uh, God, we thank you, God. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's read Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. It says, And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. I know your works. See, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it. For you have a little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name. Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. Because you have kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Behold, I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have, and no one may take your crown. He who overcomes... I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven uh, from my God, and I will write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Philadelphia, the church in Philadelphia. We have a city called Philadelphia. Obviously, if you're American, you know that. I remember going there, taking a day trip. When we lived in upstate New York with some friends many years ago to go get cheesesteaks because there's two famous cheesesteak places. Apparently not the best cheesesteaks in all of Philly. you got to find a hole in the wall. But they're competing, and we got one from one. We went around, and then on the way back, we got one from the other, and we did a little comparison. It was fun. Um, I also went again with some other friends, and uh, my wife. Uh, were we married at the time? No, we were married at the time. It was a double date. But it was good. It was nice to be able to take those day trips where you can go down there and come back on the same day. Uh, but this is not the same Philadelphia. Now I'm really hungry and want a cheesesteak. But this Philadelphia, uh, the name means brotherly love. The city was the youngest. I'm reading from the commentary of the seven cities. It was originally founded as a missionary outpost for Hellenism. This I didn't know. The culture of ancient Greece. That Greece set up the city of Philadelphia to reach out to the uh, barbaristic world beyond it to try and spread Greek culture, Greek influence, um, 
and Greek language beyond uh, the current borders of Greece. Uh, so think of it as brotherly love. Greek trying to be very woke and have brotherly love towards the uneducated world wanted to educate them in the ways of Greek and, and show this brotherly love to them. Uh, Philadelphia had been built with the deliberate intention that it might become a missionary city. Uh, the city gained its name after its founder, Attalus II, who was nicknamed Philadelphos. Uh, so it was his city. It was a prosperous city, uh, had one of the greatest highways in the world, a highway which led from all of Europe into the Middle East. Uh, Philadelphia was the gateway from one continent to another, the commentary says. Uh, apparently it had beautiful buildings. Uh, they called it Little Athens. So think of all the Greek architecture you see that even still stands today, beautiful marble and stone uh, temples, right? Um, it's interesting that Jesus talks about the temple in heaven and the marvelous city coming down from heaven when he talks to the people who live in the marvelous city their day and age. Uh, it says, To walk through the temple-scattered streets was to be reminded of Athens, the center of the worship of the Olympian gods. But Jesus says to them, uh, he says, uh, the one who is holy and who is true. And I think, especially in their day and age, Greek philosophers were all about truth. Uh, we're all about worshiping God and setting themselves apart, not the true God, but their false gods. And I think that's something that today's younger generation is yearning for. They long for truth and they long for holiness. Maybe you don't think that by the things that come out of their mouth and the things that they stand for, but when you really look at it, that's what they're doing. They found a platform that they think is true. They found things that they find to be holy, like veganism or straight edge back in my day. <laughs> You know, or you put the X's on your hands because you didn't smoke or drink or do drugs and stuff. And that's all well and good. But they're standing for these things that they find to be holy and true, but they're not. But the enemy has taken that desire among this young nation and twisted it. And I'm proud. We watched the uh, March for Life for the president. First time ever the president of the United States has spoken to, at it. And there were so many young people there. And just it gives me hope to see that, you know, whether they're believers or not, they're standing up for life. That there's hopefully going to be a sea change in our culture where young people are not going to stand for babies to be murdered any longer. Our prayers are being answered, guys. We've been praying this for this as a church, as believers, for many years. And it's starting to happen. But it's not going to keep happening if, if we stop praying for it. We pray all the time for a pro-life president, and we have one, despite any faults he may have. We have one. Let's not forget that fact come election season. But Jesus says to these people here this day, this church, and I believe you would say to this generation today, I am the holy. I am the truth. I am the genuine article. That if you want truth, it is me. It is not relative. It is not what you want it to be, what anyone wants to be. It is me. It is a person. It is God incarnate. Next, he talks about having uh, the key of David. He who opens, no one shuts, and shuts, no one opens. That he is uh, the keeper of the doors. Think of him as, not to be pejorative, but the, you know that big old janitor key ring that maybe your janitor in high school had, and a thousand keys on it. Jesus holds the keys to these things. I don't know if you remember one of the Matrix movies. There was this guy called the Gatekeeper, I think, and he guarded the Oracle, and they were all software. But he had these keys, and he could open up these secret passages they could get in and out of, uh, but only he could do that. And that's the Lord. 
not this guy in the matrix, but that God has the keys to things in your life and really in this world. Um, the world today would say that everything needs to be included. They try and unlock every door and say every door needs to be opened in life. Everything needs to be explored. Every truth is true. Open it all up. It's all good. Let's be diversive and inclusive. And don't get me wrong, I'm not against diversity. The fact that like, I don't, I don't care what country you came from as long as you came here illegally. I'm not going to go to your country illegally. So show me the same respect. But the point is, is that I love meeting people from other countries. I love when people become citizens and do it the right way. I think that's honorable. I go, I, I couldn't have gone across the world and started a life in Africa. And yet you've come here. I think that's amazing. But my point is, is that they open all these doors and say every door is good. Every false thing is somehow true. And they say, include everything except that door. And they call the one door the bigoted door. But you know whose door that is? That's God's door. It's slowly, slowly becoming that, you know, it's a broad net, it's conservatives, and then they try and make it further out, they call it all right, and then one day, guys, it's going to be specifically, they're just going to say the Christian door, because that's the only people left who are going to hang on to the truth. There's not going to be a lot of conservatives left, it's just going to be Christians. I mean, even look at Republicans today and conservatives today from 50 years ago, they're very liberal. And even uh, that one... Lady AOC says the Democrat Party is a very center party. They're not. But she's so far left, she thinks they're center. But the point is, is that they say include, include, include. But exclude the excluders. Well, aren't you excluding? It's, it's this hypocrisy. You can't say include everything and then cast out the voice that says maybe this is wrong. Because it is. And they're really just excluding the real truth, Jesus. Isn't that the enemy's plan to exclude everything about God and just make it all his? And Jesus is the one who has the keys who can give you a way out of sin. When you feel trapped, when you feel like there's no door, there's no way out in life, I remember feeling that way. Trapped in my uh, mom's house, in the, in the garage, stuck on drugs and other things, and just trapped. I felt there was no way out. But you know what? God came into my life. And the door was evident. I just had to walk through it. And 1 Corinthians 10.13 says, No temptation has overtaken you except that as such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. The only way to bear temptation is to escape it. There's always a way out. There's always a way of escape with the Lord. And I think that God is trying to, to show that through this Philadelphian church, that there's a way out. Remember the, in Acts, the disciples were chained and locked up. The angels freed them. There's no problem. Doors opened. Guards were blinded and oblivious. The chains fell off their feet. Come on, guys. Let's go. Get up, Peter. Wake up. Because if God makes that way, if God opens the door, who's going to be able to lock it? Even if they had a key for the door, he's got the master key. He's holding it open. Remember Moses in the wilderness, they, they just got out of Egypt, they were free and trying to run away, and then they come up to the Dead Sea. Oh no! And God's behind them in that pillar of cloud, separating them from the Egyptians, and as they do, he says, Moses, lift up your staff, I will make a way where there is no way. There's no way here. There's no door, there's no bridge, there's no tunnel, there's no ferry. And God says, don't worry Moses, I have the keys. And what happens? Where there was no possible way, the sea split open. And there was a dry highway in the middle of it for these hundreds of thousands of people. 
to walk through. And then what happened? They got to the other side. The Egyptians tried to use the same road. And the waters came back down and killed them all. The Israelites are free. People try today, try to explain it. You're not going to explain it other than the fact that it was a supernatural thing. It wasn't a little bit of wind upstream and it was kind of shallow and they walked through. No. There's walls of water on either side of them. If there was enough wind to make two walls of water, no one's walking through there. We had 30, 40 mile an hour winds the other day and it's waking me up. I'm thinking it's the end of the world. It's just because it's loud. Stuff blowing around that I think shouldn't have been blown around. But there was no walls of water. Because if God makes that way, it's the way. Same thing with our sin. Same thing with salvation. There's no way to get to heaven. There's no way to climb up there on the Tower of Babel. There's only one way, and it's Jesus. God made a way where there was none. He became man who was perfect and sinless to forgive us. You think even if Jesus was a sacrifice in a sense, God didn't have to forgive us. He could have just flown in our face said, look, I'm perfect. I can do this life. How come you can't? But he didn't do that. And Jesus says to this church, he says, I know your works. He doesn't go into detail. There's no critical word for them. This church has got a good. We're going to see in a minute that they're weak. But God doesn't say, guys, come on, get strong. What's your problem? He says, I know your works. I know what you're doing. He doesn't have to quantify it. He doesn't have to correct it. They're doing the work he wants them to do. Because I know your works, guys. I know them. Because they're exactly what I want you to be doing. Because the problem is not in what they're doing. And I don't even know if I call it a problem as much as it is just an admission of reality. Is that they're running out of strength doing it. That God's work is hard work and only he can do it. Psalm 127, 1 through 2 says, A song of ascent. So Solomon, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. For it is vain for you to rise up early, to sit up late, to eat the bread of sorrows. For so he gives his beloved sleep. That God's the one who's going to give rest. That God's the one who's going to do the work. And this church is about his business. But in that, they're realizing that they're weak. And they feel weak. They feel inadequate. And God says, no, 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 that's exactly where I want you to be. You are in the right place. Every other church thought they had it together, but I said, look, what are you doing? I said, I know your works, but what's this? Because they thought they had the strength to do the works because some of that strength for the works was coming out of their own flesh, now their own doctrine, and not from the word of God. And Jesus says to the Philadelphian church, he says that there's an open door before you. I've set an open door. No one can shut it. That there's this opportunity for them to keep serving him, to keep uh, getting the gospel out, to serve him in more ways, greater ways, better ways, even though they're, they're tired, even though they don't have the strength. God says, there's so much more for you to do because you're in the right place with me. I've got no stop for you. I've got no discipline for you. All I've got is blessing and opportunity for you because you know you're weak. And I know you're weak. And I have to wonder if they, if they thought that maybe God expected them to be stronger. God expected them to do more. Maybe they were, uh, I don't know, they were just troubled by it. Like, we have to keep doing this. And God says, you don't have to keep doing it. I know you're weak. I've got it. But the point is, is that there's nothing between them and him and them in heaven. Every other church, God said, you got to fix it. 
You got to do something or you're in danger of losing your lampstand. You're in danger of tribulation. You're in danger of judgment of being completely dead if you don't do something. There's something in the way of you. But in Philadelphia, guys, it's wide open. You're good. Don't worry about it. You don't have to be strong to cross this gap. And the commentary talks about there may be another sense of this open door. And perhaps the Christians in Philadelphia were excluded from the synagogue. But the open door may also speak of their opportunity to enter God's kingdom in, in contrast to the exclusion from the synagogue. But the Jews of their day, Jesus calls the synagogue of Satan. And they weren't allowed back in because they were believers. But they had closed doors in their city around them because they held fast to Jesus' name. We're not going to shop at their business. You can't get a job here, bigot. You're not open to the things of the world and inclusive and diversive. And... But God said, I've got an open door for you. And your work is perfect in my sight. And no one can shut it. But this church has an open door, little strength, kept his word, and not denied his name. But they have an evangelistic opportunity, the commentary points out, reliance on God and faithfulness to Jesus. And he says, in some ways, these features seem unspectacular. They should be commonplace among churches. Yet Jesus was completely pleased with this church. He had nothing negative to say to them. That these things are what the church is supposed to be. The Philadelphian church is the model church. And how many churches were before it? Five. I mean, uh, early on, you know, there were other good, there was another good church. The church was persecuted, right? They held on. They just had to hang on. God didn't have anything bad to say about them either. But these guys too. That they were persecuted, not on the same level to death. They lived in a very opulent and wealthy and intelligent and religious society. And it shows that it's not, it's not your environment that makes you. It's what you hang on to. And this is what the church should be. And yet when we find a church in our day and age that loves God, that loves each other, that has healthy outreach, not just trying to fill seats and invites the church, but does it to love the community and holds fast to Jesus' name and his word? That's hard to find. Should it be? Should it be so hard to find a place that teaches the Bible? I hate to say it even verse by verse. I mean, there's plenty of great teachers like Dr. Stanley don't do verse by verse. You're topical and I get it. That's fine. They've held fast to God's word, but how many places don't? They just skip around and they skip things and the message... Sure, it's good, but it's lacking somewhere in the overall application. And not that we've got it perfect either, or I have it, but there's something to be said about going verse by verse through God's Word. You kind of have to hang on to it. And I think in this day and age, you almost have to go through it verse by verse to be able to hang on to it because there's so much attack against it. There's so much false doctrine that says that this is bigoted or wrong or evil or should be changed. Or God is love, but they forget the judgment. And we won't forget it if we go verse by verse. And when it comes to the true believers in the last days before the tribulation, this is a good description. That the real believers are going to be about these things. The God's church who is doing the right thing is going to look like this. There's not going to be many of us. There's not going to be a lot of strength socially in our movement. It doesn't mean that God's not going to be doing a great work in it. 
It's not going to be a popular church. It's not going to be up on stage at the MTV Video Music Awards or whatever they still do. I don't know. I don't even play. Any, they don't play video music anymore, do they? But we have to push against such a strong, evil tide. Of course we're going to be weak. Of course we're going to be tired. Of course there's not going to be many of us. Because in the last days, many will seek out teachers after their itching ears to tell them that your truth is best truth. But this church has not turned from Jesus' name. They haven't been ashamed to speak of Jesus in this epicenter of Greek culture. That this church that's got everything right is unashamed of him. And this culture that talks about Zeus and every other god and their language and uh, it holds up all the society's values. They say, no, it's Jesus. These things are wrong. These things are wicked. It's all about God. God is the only truth. He's the way, the truth, and the life. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10, Paul says, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelations, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. You know, scholars believe that he had eye issues and he couldn't see very well, amongst other health things. And he says, Concerning this thing, I pleaded with the Lord three times that might depart from me. That this is something that, this was satanic coming against him. He prayed for God to remove it, and God didn't remove it. That God allowed this satanic thing to keep happening in his life. Not that Paul was sinning or anything like that, but says, My grace is sufficient for you, Paul. My strength is made perfect in weakness. And Paul says, Therefore, most, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches, in needs and persecutions and distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, and I'm strong. When do we boast when we're in need? Don't we just boast when God sends us that check in the mail and we're able to pay the bill? Do we ever boast that, man, praise God, I can't pay my bills this month because I'm doing the right thing. Do we boast that? I lost my job because I stood up for Jesus. I have no clue I want to pay my mortgage. Praise God. That's what Paul says. Oh, I'm sick. I've got a prayer request. I get it. Good. But have you ever boasted? I've got cancer because I'm doing the right thing. I pray God to take it away. He didn't take it away, but praise God. I'm going home soon and I'm going to live for the next world. How often do we hear that? Now, could I say that? I don't know. I don't know if I'll be able to say that when I have cancer. I don't know. And I'm not saying to feel bad. If you, do, if you don't, aren't that way. But I'm saying maybe we're looking at things the wrong way. And maybe the church needs to look at things in a heavenly way, like Paul says. That this thing that's awful in this world is awful. People won't even look at me because my eyes are crusted. I can't see. It's hard for me to get up. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, your stomach, you've got all these problems. Drink a little wine. It's okay. You're not, you're not breaking the commandments by doing that. You know, you need that painkiller, Timothy, because you have problems. It's okay. And Barnhouse says, The church of Philadelphia is commended for keeping the word of the Lord and not denying his name. He says, Success in Christian work is not to be measured by any other standard of achievement. It is not, it, it is not rise in ecclesiastical position. It is not the number of new buildings which have been built through a man's ministry. It is not the crowds that flock to listen to any human voice. All these things are frequently used as yardsticks of success, but they are earthly and not heavenly 
measures. Now we need to be careful because we can't say the opposite is true, that when no one comes, when no one listens, when everyone's against you doing what you're doing, that this is persecution, brother. I'm not saying that. But we need to look to who is the one saying that I know your works. I know that you're holding on to my name and my word. And not let these things become the measures of our success. Because they're the measures of success in our society. You do good at business. You got lots of money. That's a good success. There's nothing wrong with that. We were ta- I was talking with a friend the other night. Talking about business there. It's like people are so entitled. But you forget that the simplest thing. If I go out and I farm 40 acres. I should be entitled to that 40 acres of revenue that comes in. Of crops that come in. But if I, don't, if I only go out and farm an acre and I only put enough effort in to farm an acre, well then, why should I expect any more than an acre's worth of profit? Now, granted, there's all sorts of things, famine and other stuff that happens. But we get mad at people in society who go out and work 80, 100 hours a week to be successful and then they retire when they're 40 because they worked so hard and they, they were paying attention to, to opportunities and they sought those open doors and they invested the right times. Then we say, well, how dare you be rich? You should pay for my college. I shouldn't. No, there's nothing wrong with it. Now, you know, granted, not everyone does those things right, but you know, I get examples sort of like my brother, you know, my brother and I came from the same house. Um, he's a smart guy. He worked hard. And he's successful. And do, do I hold it against him? No, I think that's awesome and honorable. In fact, I look at my life and go, I wish I worked a little bit harder. I wish I did a little bit of things a little bit differently when I was younger. But I was foolish and, and he wasn't. So does he owe me anything? No. If he were to ever offer me, I'd be like, Thomas, you earned it. Like, I, I, I have nothing there. So it's like the same thing in the world. You know, if, if someone else is doing good and I'm not, it's, it's probably my fault I'm not doing good. We have plenty of opportunity here in America. And yeah, there's, there's things that are unfair that happen. But when it comes down to it, you know, the worker is worthy of his wages. If you don't work, you don't eat, the Bible says. And I think it's, the problem is when that creeps into the church. And a, a big church looks at a little church and says, well, they must not be doing anything right. They don't have any books published. They don't have satellite campuses. We've got it all figured out. We're strong. And on the flip side, the small church looks at the big church and says, you guys have no idea what you're doing. You're both the church. There's different positions. The, the, the point is, is God pleased with what you're doing? Because he might not be pleased with what you're doing if no one's there. He might not be pleased with what you're doing if everybody's there. In fact, almost the sense that if everyone's there and you're not preaching his name and his word and hold fast to it, that's kind of a big deal. It's one thing if I preach and there's no one here and no one listens online. I kind of, okay, well, I messed up. Maybe it was a bad message. And I, you know, my discipline's not going to be that bad in the end. In the same sense, if I taught a bad message with thousands of people and thousands of people altered their lives because of a, a, a lie or a distortion of the truth or a misapplication, what was me? Paul says, you know, hey, not many should seek after being teachers because there's a double judgment. There can be a really good reward or there can be a real big punishment. But he calls these people the synagogue of Satan. Again, remember this is the same issue they had in Smyrna. These were Jews who persecuted the Christians. And man, 
they are the people of God. The church, the, the church is the body of Christ and uh, Israel is the people of God. And these are supposed to be God's people. They're so caught up in, in their religion that they've left the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're not the synagogue of Yahweh like they're supposed to be. In fact, Yahweh calls them synagogue of Satan. That's like, just like the church having the, the sword of God's word coming at them. Man, God would call a sect of his Jewish people the synagogue of Satan? Watch out. Just because you've got pedigree, just because you belong to something your whole life, and it's about the truth, doesn't mean that it's got the spirit of truth in it. And Jesus says, then one day they will see, and they'll end up bowing down to you. That we are supposed to be living for the next life, not this one. Not that everyone bowed down to us now. Not that the fact that we live for the people who bow down to us the next one. But that our goal is not our acceptance in this life. It's for acceptance in Jesus' eyes. And that's done at the cross. That's done by his blood. But that we will live for the rewards of the next life. I'm getting to heaven because of what Jesus did for me. If I've got a Cadillac in heaven, it's because I did the... Cadillac's worth of spiritual work, so to speak, here on earth. I don't know. I just, I just want to get in and have some clothes and a crown. I'll be good. You know, the food's free. We'll be fine. <laughs> but there's this idea about the tribulation saints, those who get saved during the, the tribulation to come, and we can get into this later, might have a different position and role in heaven. Not that it'll be any less heaven, so to speak, but in the sense that they're going to be serving in heaven. That somehow you had all this opportunity and you had to wait. Everyone else made the decision at the right time and you waited until the world was completely falling apart. And maybe that's, this ties into that a little bit. That when these Jews who get saved in the end times, they get to heaven, I was really like, oh, we we're going to serve you. We're going to serve you, brother. We're going to take care of you here in heaven, brother. On earth, they were persecuting them but verse 10 says because you have kept my command to persevere i will also keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth listen to this there's seven churches this verse only happens and is spoken to this church listen to what it says again it says jesus says to philadelphian church because you have kept my command to persevere I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. That this is big. This is an open door. This is a guaranteed fire escape. The people in Australia with the fires were out of the beaches. They had no place left to go and some of the Coast Guard and Navy came to get them and rescue them or whatever. But this is guaranteed. The word means here to keep and guard and I don't believe it's God's heart here to just guard them through the tribulation. That somehow they'll be protected like Noah through the tribulation. Could be. You know, I'm not God, I'm not complaining, it, but I believe seeing what we're reading here, what we see outlined in scriptures, like with Enoch, where before the flood, Enoch walked with God and what? It was no more. That God raptured him before the flood. I don't know, I know. It was like, God, can you do that to me too? <laughs> Got a different plan for Noah. 1 Thessalonians 4, 7 talks about being caught up in the air. Raptured, harpazo. I believe this is the final open door that Jesus has the keys and he's excluding these people who are faithful in this time 
who did the things he wanted them to do from the time to come. But there's no judgment against them here in, the, in, this, in this thing. There's no correction that has to come against them in this area of Scripture. So if they've done everything right, why, do they, why would they have to go to Saturday detention? You go to Saturday detention, but we'll give you a lollipop. You know, you can play on your Game Boy. That's not what God is saying here. He's saying, I'm taking you out. You don't have to be here for this. But this word is to the faithful church right before the end. No other church has this guarantee. We tend to look at the, at the rapture and getting out of tribulation as everybody, all, believer, all believers are going to get out. And I still want to hold fast to that. But I have to tell you that reading through this and not just listening to what's been taught over the years and just looking simply at the scriptures and I go, maybe we're missing something. And I don't want to split hairs on it because I believe that everyone who faithfully loves Jesus will have that, well, can be raptured. I, I believe that. But I think when you look at the church and you look at those who are faithfully following him in every denomination and those who aren't, there's going to be plenty left here who claim to be Christians but aren't faithfully following him that weren't raptured, right? So it comes down to this hard issue. And again, like I said, I don't want to split hairs because I can't make that judge. But all I can say is that God says that you guys are getting out. And in fact, the other church, like we saw last week, what happened if they didn't turn? They were headed towards a time of great trial. The time of great trial would be what got them to repent. But they had to repent before that time happened. And I have to wonder, you know, if, that ch if the church, uh, 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 church in Sardis repented, do they somehow become the church in Philadelphia? You know what I mean? Like spiritually, do you kind of change teams, change the jersey when you repent? I don't know how that works. Because God says that this tribulation period that we're going to get into uh, in the next couple of chapters and the rest of Revelation is meant to test those left on the earth, meant to judge them. It's meant to get them to repent when everything else has failed. The 2,000 years of grace in the age of church, the church, the gospel going out to all the world, translations of the Bible, missionaries, people on TV, people don't repent. So God says, okay, Philadelphian church, come with me. Holy Spirit backs off. The man of lawlessness, lawlessness and sin is revealed. People flock to him and follow him. Judgment comes on the earth. Guys, the Bible is still going to be sitting there at the bookstore. It's still going to be in the, and, you know, somewhere, and people are going to find it. Angels are going to go through the heavens and preach the gospel. But that's the time to repent. This time of tribulation is meant to test them that even if given a last chance, a last wake-up call, to show that those who still don't repent and want the mountains to fall on them are worthy of this judgment, are worthy of hell because they chose it despite every chance given to them in this time of trial. And it would weed out the last few people who would say, yes, God, we bow to you now. I should have done it years ago, but now I see this is it. I don't want the Antichrist. I don't want this world where asteroids are falling and creatures coming out of the deep and we all want to die and we can't. I want you, God, even if it costs my life because I'm going to die anyway. And Jesus says to the Philadelphian church, I'm coming quickly. These birth pangs like we looked at the beginning are happening so quickly. I think by 2030s, I mean, I'll mark it down now. Don't take it to the bank, but if we're here past the 2030s, 
I'm going to be surprised. Something that I kind of felt before I got saved as I was reading Revelation. And now as I've been saved and it's 2020, today's actually a palindrome to a 0202 2020, forward backwards. That I feel like we're even closer. Now, am I still living like we could go on another 100 years? Sure, I'm trying to invest and make right choices for my children and, and do all that, but and honestly, I don't, I don't think we're going to make it that far. But he says to this Philadelphian church, your crown can be taken. Your rewards might be lost if you don't hold fast Jesus and his righteousness. That I'm coming quickly, hold fast. Don't cash out right before the end. You know, you've been waiting so long. You've been on that ride for four hours, on that line for four hours at the music park to get on the ride. You have to go around one more bend, but you didn't know it was just one more bend, and so you got off, off line. You said, ah, I don't want to wait anymore. Isn't that frustrating when you're at the store and you change lines or you pick a line because you think it's going to go and then you see the other line go and you haven't moved a bit because the person in front of you wanted to pay with a check and then they didn't know the right price and like, why well, did I always pick the wrong line? <laughs> Don't get out of that line. Get, stay in the right line no matter what it costs. And he says that you'll be in my temple forever like a pillar. Uh, greater than these Athenian pillars, you're going to be in the temple of God. And he says, my God that they both have the same God, that Jesus worships God in the same way that we worship him. And we can worship God because Jesus is God and brings us there. He says, I'll write on him my new name, the, the person in the Philadelphian church who hangs on, that they don't get just a stone with their new name on it. They get Jesus's new name, a name not yet handed over to him, written on them. Another God, another temple on them. Now this it's not in a sense a new name that it's not necessarily an attribute of God, but when the time comes and Jesus has rightfully judged the earth and all its inhabitants and the fallen angels, everything's taken care of. It's over. It's the final mark of God will be on everyone. God is the righteous judge. He judged righteously all the earth, all heaven, and all hell for all time. And that name will be on these people. They will be in the temple of God. They will never have to leave the temple of God. They've had to be, they've been kicked out of the synagogue and out of the temple, so to speak, but they're going to be in God's temple forever. It's a sure place, a holy place. It's the truth, and they're not going to be kicked out. And we hear, hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And I believe we all can be the Philadelphian church if we would look and pray for an open door to minister. Number two, realize that we're weak. We need to rely on his strength alone. Number three, not worry about our words and what the word of the day is, but to hang tightly to Jesus' word. And number four, not build up our own name or take on a name of the world to be ours and make sure that the world knows what quote-unquote spiritual brand we represent, but instead to confidently affirm Jesus' name, the name of above all names. And I was reminded of this verse by my oldest daughter, Mia, before service. It says, Matthew 7, 7, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. So God, this morning, if we're knocking for an answer, if we're knocking and looking for truth, maybe we, someone listening doesn't know you yet. God, thank you that you'll open the door to them, God. That the door is open now. 
that they just have to pray, God, please forgive me of all my sin. You are the way, the truth, and the life. I know you died for me on the cross. Please bring me to heaven and help me live for you. If you pray a prayer like that, you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, the Bible says you will be saved. It is a wide open door for you. Take it. God, I pray that in these last days you'd help all your church to be the Philadelphian church. You'd help people in every denomination to come to you and be a part of the real church, the church that loves you, the church that's doing things right. And for us, God, when we do something wrong, help us to repent of it, God. Thank you for your grace, God. Help us hold fast to your word in these last days. And God, may you bring more people to you. And in that, God, may you save babies. May you end abortion in this country. May we continue to have presidents who, whether they're righteous or not, people that they would at least look to you and look to the right things and seek those right things. And, and God, would you save our president and save those in government. But God, most of all, come soon, come quickly. And God, would you find us faithful and able to say, welcome into my Father's rest, my good and faithful servant. We love you, God. Bless your people this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. May God bless you and keep you in his face, shine upon you for all eternity. There is a vineyard of the Lord. There is a vineyard for our soul. With all our troubles left behind the door, we drink first light until the door.